portion of Scripture we'd like to spend just a few moments on today to let it speak to us and address our lives comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Let's be standing, please, as we hear this, the Word of God that was written to the church in Colossae so many years ago, but remains the Word of God in our lives as well. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. May God bless the reading of his word. A while back, Pat and I were in a restaurant, and I was sitting where I could see the door and watching people come and go. And a couple walked in that really caught my eye, uh, a couple with two small boys, ages 9, 11, 12, somewhere in there. And the couple was obviously the grandparents of the boys, either that or they really got a late start uh, in their family, but it looked like grandparents and grandchildren to me. And several things I noticed. One of the first things I noticed was the scowls on the grandparents' face, thought, Ooh, okay. Then I noticed that one little boy was uh, pretty well groomed and pretty smartly dressed, you know, according to the style of that age. And, but he had a handheld game of some kind. And he walked in playing the game, never took his eyes off the game, somehow found his chair. I don't know if there's a GPS in those games or what that leads you to. But he sat down in the chair, sat down and sat there and continued playing his game. The other little boy was different, and just one of those things you could notice pretty quickly that he obviously had some challenges in his life, uh, mental challenges, perhaps some physical challenges, just looked different from who I assumed to be his brother. 
Well, he came in and he sat down and he was just a bundle of energy. And he immediately picked up the salt shaker and began playing with the salt shaker. And the grandfather, still scowling, grabbed the salt shaker, put it down on the table and said, leave that alone, you'll just make a mess. I thought, whoa. (laughs) So the boy picked up the menu and the menu was an airplane. The menu was a tent. And he was going in and out of the tent. Grandfather reached over, grabbed the menu, put it down, says, that's irritating, stop it. So then the little boy sat there and they ordered their drinks and they brought the drink and yeah, you guessed it. Just moments after the drink hit the table, he knocked it over. Fortunately, it had a lid on it. Grandfather set the thing up and said, see, that's why we always have to get a lid for you. You're always making a mess. You just always do that. Well, on and on it went. And I thought, ooh, I'm glad that that's not how I grew up. Now, I don't know those people's whole story, and I don't know what kind of day those grandparents had had, but I do know how difficult it is to flourish in an atmosphere of constant criticism. And I think all of you know that too, because all of us at some point in our lives have found ourselves in situations where we felt like we were being constantly scrutinized and constantly criticized. Maybe you grew up in a home like that, or maybe you found that at school, uh, where it was either the, the teachers or your peers that you felt were constantly critical of you. Perhaps you found it in a job somewhere, uh, where you were constantly watched and second-guessed and criticized, or sadly enough, sometimes you can even find it in a marriage where one spouse is constantly watching and criticizing the other. But a place where it's really sad to find it is church. And yet, it happens there a lot. We're pretty easy marks when it comes to feeling criticized about our spiritual lives. It doesn't take much to make us feel inferior when it comes to our spirituality. We preachers have kind of made it an art of making you feel guilty about your spirituality. This text that I just read sort of grabs us by the back of the neck and says, maybe you need to rethink that particular method of teaching and preaching. The book of Colossians was written to a church that had been infiltrated by a group of really critical folks. Now, this church was not a church that Paul had started. Epaphras had gone there and preached the gospel, obviously, as we saw in our reading. Most of the churches that Paul wrote to were churches that he himself had been instrumental in beginning, but, but not this church. But he was moved to write to this church because after the church got going, somewhere along the way, a group of people came in and they began to be very critical of the folks in the church and to make them feel bad about who they were and what they were doing and that they were spiritually inferior to them. 
Now, some of the things they criticized was the way they worshiped. They talked about their worship was just not spiritual enough. They weren't doing the right things in worship. They criticized them because they seemed to, uh, you know, enjoy eating with each other and they weren't careful about what they ate. They, you know, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to, you know, stay in the straight and narrow and do it this way and do it that way. They, they criticized them because obviously they weren't really in touch with God. You know, God was talking to these other folks. He was just a good buddy and was always talking to them. They got visions and obviously, you know, you guys just aren't quite spiritual enough because you're not getting all of that. And the end result you can imagine was these folks sitting there with their head down, much like the little boy at the table who eventually just grew still and quiet, and dropped his head. Listen to how different Paul's approach is to these people who had been beaten down in their spiritual lives, to these people who were being told they weren't good enough. Paul begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and along with Timothy, our brother, to the saints... What do you do when someone says, oh, you're a saint? Come on, admit it. Oh, no, I'm no saint. Yeah, you are. You're here. You're a part of this church. You're a part of God's family. Guess what that makes you? You're a saint. You are holy. You've been set apart for God. You are one of God's own people. To the saints and to the, and listen to this, this has to be just beautiful music. Because you can imagine, as this church gathered for worship, with all this criticism and carping and harping going on in the church, as they sat there and these people were like, oh great, here we go again. Someone gets up and says, we've got a letter from the Apostle Paul has written to this church, and I want to read it to you. And they begin reading, and as these words start coming out, you can just imagine how it must feel. To the saints and to the Faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Faithful? Saints? Paul continues to say, In our prayers, every time we pray for you, we thank God for you, the Father and our Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have. For all the saints. Paul starts out that way. He says, you guys are amazing. You guys are awesome. Well, I want to bring that same word to you today. I don't know how you came in this room feeling about yourself spiritually. But you're here. Congratulations. You were moved while the majority of people, even in this Bible Belt area of San Angelo, the majority of people, if they're up yet, they're just sort of sitting around in their den, reading the paper, out on the patio, they're out at the lake. You're here because you love God and something inside of you has pulled you to come to this place of honor and worship of His name. Congratulations to you, His saints, to you, His faithful Brothers and sisters of Christ, we're proud of you and pray for you because obviously you are people of faith and obviously you are people of love. Doesn't that make you feel better than have someone get up here and say, you're not good enough? (laughs) 
Paul begins in this way. Now, however, Paul does have some things to tell these folks. But now that he's got their heads lifted up a little bit, the way he communicates it to them is, is, is very encouraging. And they're ready to listen because Paul does want them to continue growing and to continue progressing in their faith and in their love. So listen to how he tells them this. He says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And you know where that faith and love came from? It's because of the hope that you have that is laid up for you in heaven. Now there we have what is often called the Pauline triad, faith, hope, and love. Now that's the way he says it in Corinthians. And he says, there's faith, hope, and love, these three. And which of these is the greatest? Is love. And yeah, love is. Love is the ultimate area. That's where we want to be headed to. But that's not his point in Colossians, nor his point in 1 Thessalonians, where he puts out these same three things again, because both here in Colossians and in 1 Thessalonians, he doesn't say faith, hope, and love. He says faith, love, and hope. And the reason he mentions hope last here is because it is the, the wellspring that produces our faith and our love. And if he wants them to continue growing in their faith and growing in their love, the way he says to do is look at your hope and experience your hope. One thing about criticism is it just robs us of hope, doesn't it? We can be beat down to the point where we think we'll never be good enough, we'll never make it. Yet here comes the gospel of Jesus Christ and says, you have hope. And if we have hope, we can live lives of faith and love. Let me illustrate this with a sports analogy. Now, I try not to give too many sports analogies because every time I do, some of you non-sports fans will come up and say, oh, you're talking about sports again. Well, hey, the Apostle Paul talked about sports, so I can talk about sports every once in a while. Now, usually when I talk about sports, I'll talk about football. In fact, when I started writing this down, I had it as a football game. I said, no, 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 we'll do baseball. It's baseball season. We've got baseball fans. All right, be a baseball fan for a little while. You've got your home team, and you've gone to see a game, and they're playing, okay, and the home team is there. You're down to the bottom of the ninth. Which if, if you're playing the bottom of the ninth and you're the home team, guess what? You're behind. Okay, so let's pretend your team is behind five runs. Five runs in the bottom of the ninth. Not much hope. And as the bottom of the ninth begins, well, the batter gets up and immediately strikes out. One out, bottom of the ninth, down by five. People start getting up and walking out. Why are they leaving? There's no hope. That's what they're saying. And as they leave, you hear them complaining. You know, if that guy hadn't dropped that ball in the third inning, if that pitcher was half a pitcher, we got to get us some more pitching. You know, there's no hope. We're upset. We're leaving. But then all of a sudden, the next batter walks little glimmer of hope. you got a runner on first. Next batter gets a little blooping single, and now you got runners on first and second. Next guy gets a little single. Now the bases are loaded. People are starting to stir around a little bit. After all, we got bases loaded, got two outs left to go. 
maybe there's a little hope. Guy walks up, one swing of the bat, grand slam home run. Score four runs at once. Everybody now is out of their seat. They're cheering. They're yelling because now there's some hope. That's right. The whole atmosphere has changed. You're not hearing any griping about the pitching. You're not hearing any griping about the guy that dropped the ball. We've got some hope here, and we're excited about all of this. So now we're cheering. Okay, so now we're only down by one. The next guy comes up. He gets on first. All right, now you've got the tying run on first. And guess who's walking up to the plate? Your slugger, your cleanup guy. You know, the guy that's leading the, the whole league in home runs. He's walking up to the plate. And now you are jumping up. You've got your cap turned wrong side out, on backwards. You know, you're cheering. And guess what? You love everybody in that stadium. They're all your best friends, aren't they? Because you're all one and you're cheering because you have you know, we talk about faith and love in a lot of different ways. And in this particular text, it just sort of reminded me of cheering and being in that kind of atmosphere. We can do it. Yes, we can. We can make it. It's going to be okay. And I'm so glad I'm here. And I'm so glad I'm with all these people here. And you're not sitting around picking out things about all this and you don't like about this and you don't like about that because we're being driven by the hope that we're going to win this game. Our Christian hope drives our lives. It's what gives us our faith and our love. It's why we're not picking each other apart. It's why we're embracing each other. It's why we think that it's all going to be okay. It's all going to work. And when we can relax and we're not picked apart and we're not feeling like it's all just hopeless, then we're free. We're free to believe. We're free to love. Paul says this hope comes from the gospel, but he says it in a very specific way, too. He says that this hope came from the gospel that was preached to you. But listen to verse 6. Just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it's been bearing fruit among yourselves. You know, this faith, this love, this hope, all of this has been working in you too. From the day when you heard it and you truly began to comprehend the grace of God. The day you heard the gospel, and then that day, maybe even on down the road, where you truly began to comprehend that God can love even me. That God can accept even me. Even me with my this. Even me with my that. That he can still love me and still hold on to me. And that it's going to be okay in the end. Wednesday night, I shared with the group at Oasis a prayer that was written by a man named Kenneth Pfeiffer. And for some reason, the way he said this just really touched me. He said in his prayer, Out of the heart of Jesus came the evidence of his love for all kinds of people, even people like me. And also came his refusal to give up on any of us. 
God has not given up on you. Don't you give up either. There's hope. And when we truly begin to comprehend the grace of God and the hope that he has given us, then we are set free to live lives of faith and of love. It's a simple message. But it's a message that gives life. I've got a couple of more minutes. There's one more point in here that really did impress me as I was going through. It's Paul was, goes on to talk about these people growing and how they come to know God. You know, the more we know about God, the more we trust in His grace, the more we realize how much He loves us. And he says, you know how you can learn more about God? Well, he doesn't say it just this way, but trust me, it's in there, okay? Says, you, you, know, you can learn about God lots of different ways. One way you can learn about God is through this book, and, and I recommend it to you. It's a good book. You know, read it, study it. You can learn a lot out of this book. But there's some things that you're never going to learn from this book that you're going to have to learn some other ways. And what Paul said is if you want to be filled more with the knowledge of God and know who he is, get out and start doing something for someone else. And I almost guarantee you that in doing something good for someone else, you're going to learn something about God. And I want to share a lesson that I learned about God that sort of ties in with the whole theme of grace. And I can share this with you because I was doing something good, but... I had to do it because it was part of my job, you know, so maybe that way I'm not bragging about this. You know, I, I was at the church building eight to five. This was a part of my job, and I was to give out the benevolent help for the church when I was in Tyler when I first got there. And so one guy that came in to me one day was a young man named Rocky. And Rocky came in. He was a young man, and he was dragging his leg like this and, you know, just obviously in terrible pain. And he came in, I said, well, have a seat, Rocky. And okay. And he drug his leg over there and he just barely could sit down and he put his leg out like that. And I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, I'm a roofer and I fell off a roof and have hurt my hip and can't work and behind on my rent and don't have any groceries. And I said, well, fine, well, you know, we'll take care of that. And so we helped him with his rent and we got him some groceries and sent Rocky off and there he went. And well, two or three weeks later, Secretary buzzed me again, said, uh, young man that was here a few weeks ago, Rocky's here. But I remember Rocky, send him on in. Here he came. And I was hoping his leg would be better, but it looked worse. You know, it just, he grimacing and dragging that leg, sits down, tells me that the leg's not getting any better. The doctors don't know what to do with him, and he needs more money. And so we help him, and we give him, you know, and off he goes. Well, it seemed like I saw him. I know I saw him those two times, maybe three. I don't remember. But then one day... Pat and I are at the mall, and we're walking down the mall, and I look up there, and I think, that guy coming at me looks like Rocky, and here he comes. He's just a parent. Got this pretty young girl on his arm, you know, and they're just talking and laughing, and Rocky's, oh, man, he's got some nice clothes on. He's got gold chains around his neck, and so I think, I'm going to get him, so I walk up to him, and I say, hey, Rocky. He says, Pastor Tommy, how are you? <laughs> I said, I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, man, doing great. And then here he just went on, you know. <laughs> and I just laughed. I told Pat the story. I said, I guess that's the last time I'll see Rocky. Week later, phone buzzes. Rocky's here. Send him in. <laughs> I want to talk to Rocky. So door opens. Oh, man, here he comes. I sits down. I said, Rocky, how's that leg doing? Oh, it's just getting worse. I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, Rocky, 
Don't you remember I saw you out at the mall? Oh, yeah. Good to see you out there. I said, you know, was that your girlfriend with you? Yeah. Well, you seem to be walking fine then. He just laughed. Yeah. He says, man, my leg's hurting. I need some money. (laughs) All of a sudden, I realized there I sat before God. You know, I manipulate, I do all these things to get his attention, to get his favor. And the words that came out of my mouth suddenly sounded like God's words to me. I hope you understand what I mean by all that, but just Rocky, just be honest. We want to help you. We want to help you do some things in life. We want to help you get ahead, but just be honest with me. Why do we have to play this game? I play all kinds of games with God. Do you? And all the time he's sitting there saying, just be honest. Just be open. Come to me as you are and who you are. Because I really do love you. And I want to help you. Now I learned that in in the act of trying to help and to do good. Didn't learn it so much out of the book. But we can grow as we get out there and get busy. Because we have confidence that God truly does love us. Let me close just with how Paul closed this section. He reminded them, he said, you know, you have a father who has qualified you or who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Because he has rescued you from the power of darkness. He has transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption And you had the forgiveness of sins. Live in that hope and rise and cheer in your faith and love. Let's stand and sing.